DJ Simulationistas. Sup? With Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin and let's roll. Welcome, everyone, to DJ Simulationistas. You're here with Janice Pelaganis and the brilliant Dr. Dan Raymer. Am Hi, Dan. I shining yet again? Shining. Uh, shiny. Uh, polished. Up, Janice? <laughs> Dan. Yes, ma'am. I would like to talk about modeling and simulation and technology. Is it a second career? Oh my gosh, I could never do that. I like to be behind the camera. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I like to take the pictures. So as you know, I was I was in charge of leading all the pilot uh, visits when we were developing accreditation. And we did accredit some centers based on in, the pilot. In the, in the Simulation Society. In, in the, the yes. SSH, yep. In the Society mm-hmm. for Simulation Healthcare. One of the underlying things that we saw between the groups that were accredited was that they completely made their own models and gutted existing mannequins to make them, you know, serve their their learning objective or make it look more real. And so when I see your models and what you do in your mad simulationist lab, I I just think that that is exactly what I've seen in accreditation, and I wanted to pick your brain about it. Sure, yeah. I um, think that the mannequins over the 25 years I've been involved in simulation have been fairly disappointing. They're, um, they're, they're not very realistic, and they have quite limited capabilities to do many of the things that we've wanted to teach, even in the very first years that we were doing simulation seemed like we exceeded their capability quite quickly and the companies that make mannequins have uh, have not really uh, advanced them all that much and so I think there's uh, you know an imperative to uh, make useful models to use along with those mannequins or to enhance those mannequins to achieve educational goals. And for our listeners, I just want to say that I I think that's appropriate for the market right now because to me, at at least still, it's a vendor-driven market and there's no dire need for these vendors to to make them look better or more real than they already do. And and some look really real and and look great, um, but people are buying these things and there's waiting lists for things that there's no dire need for them at this point. Yeah, so um, I guess I can't blame the business point of view that they have that making a generic mannequin that has basic capabilities is is wrong. That certainly makes a lot of sense from the business point of view, and I understand that. From an educator point of view, I often feel limited that they just can't do the things that I want them to do. 
Yeah, so you do this on a daily basis. I watch you do things that I think the field could do in addition to what exists out there in terms of the vendor market. And so if you can help our listeners understand, you know, what you've done and how you do it, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, so uh, so I sort of backed into it, I have to say, because um, uh, as you know, I have an engineering background. I have a, 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 my doctorate is in bioengineering, and I was an electrical engineer as an undergraduate. And so people that I worked with in healthcare simulation immediately said, oh, you must know how to do everything in, uh, in terms of technology and uh, uh, construction of prototypes and things like that. And the fact of the matter is that uh, very little of my engineering training or experience was building things. Um, so it was much more um, computer software and, and mathematical modeling than it was uh, building things. And so, you know, I kind of felt this pressure uh, from all my colleagues, mostly physician and nursing colleagues, to come up with something that would be useful for us uh, as we were trying to teach. And the biggest challenge that, that occurred very early on was uh, surgery. So um, we had a very strong um, backing from anesthesiology. We ran a lot of anesthesiology courses and, of course, doing interprofessional courses involving surgeons and nurses and anesthesiologists was the uh, was the very goal very early on. We really wanted to do that. But everyone argued that we couldn't really do that because none of the mannequins had anything for the surgeons to do. And so out of necessity, uh, I started making some little things that I thought might engage the surgeons. And the first thing I did was I just uh, convinced a surgeon to uh, come to a course and I kind of goaded him into teaching me how to tie some knots in some four by fours. And, uh, and he, uh, he did teach me and, you know, I, I'm fairly clumsy. So he had to do a lot of, you know, very intense, focus on what I was doing. And in the meantime, we had some event occur to the patient, like the patient went into anaphylactic shock or something like that. I remember exactly what it was. And at the end, he was just amazed at how engaged he was and that how he completely missed the fact that the patient was deteriorating while I was giving him a hard time about tying knots. And so it, it led to a kind of revelation for me that, um, that the, the function of the model was much more important than what the model looked like. And so any kind of representation of something for the surgeon to operate on that would function in a way that was familiar to them um, was much better than trying to create a model that was anatomically perfect. And that's held true throughout. And so that was a real step forward to me. It meant that I could make some pretty crude things and try and make them work like bleed. And that's all I needed to do to engage them. And so I guess the general principle that I came up with was that uh, for any procedure, the 
function of the model for that procedure is much, much more important than the fidelity, the how how accurate the the model was to the to the real thing. And so by function that I'm guessing it includes the interaction. Yeah, so um, uh, so if it's important for them to feel something, so lately I've been uh, building models that have abscesses in them, and so when they press on the abscess, we have I have the abscess filled with some fluid like hand cream or something like that uh, with a little food coloring in it, and when you press on it, it feels like an abscess. And so that's enough to get them to understand that this is an abscess that needs to be opened and drained. And the fact that it's filled with hand lotion uh, and the fact that it is made out of rubber and doesn't look exactly like an abscess doesn't seem to deter them. In fact, they're completely engaged uh, as a rule uh, with that kind of model. And so, yeah, so if feel is important, then it's got to feel right. If it's uh, uh, bleeding, the bleeding has to look right. And if it's an arterial bleed, it's got a pulse to give them that cue that it's an arterial bleed. Um, If it's uh, um, something that pulls away from them, then it pulls away. If it's something that turns color. So we developed uh, an aortic um, dissection model for cardiac surgery, and it turns purple. And as soon as it turns purple, that's the cue that they're looking for, that this is an aortic dissection. And I have to say that our aorta doesn't look anything like an aorta that I've seen in a real human. Uh, It's just a kind of fat piece of rubber that is in the approximately the right place to represent an aorta. Uh But the fact that it suddenly turns purple at the right moment, that's enough to get the cue across. And they swoop into action as if they were really operating on someone who had an aortic dissection. So I think that principle of it's just got to act right um, is something to keep in mind as you make a model. Yeah. So... You know, one thing, one term that um, we have in in uh, our textbook, the SSH Society for Simulation Healthcare textbook, is modality matching, and that it's not all about the technology. Don't get excited about the mannequin. You really want to match your modality with your objectives. What I like about what you're saying is that there's much more than just matching it to the objectives. It's really exploring with the learner group what are the sense cues, like of the five senses, what is it that really hits the most at that objective, that, you know, what makes that situation more real to them. And that's something that I think people should consider as they're developing their simulations. Yeah. And, and you know, the adage is let the let the model or let the simulator come second. So you want the learning objectives and you want to describe those accurately first and then choose or build or modify the model to match it. Just because a mannequin has a particular feature doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that that's the only scenario you can do. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think thinking of it from the from the perspective perspective that you just described is is really important to take a few minutes and sit back and think what does this have to do in order to engage people. Well, I think it's bringing in uh, actual learners or experts that deal with those situations that you know running them through the simulator with the technology and how it's going to function and. For them to say, no, 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 if if I saw blue, that would be the key indicator to me. Right. Um, and involving them in your dry runs. Absolutely. I've had to go back to the drawing board quite a number of times after my misunderstanding of what triggered them uh, got clarified when they when I got an expert in to sit with me and say, so what is this? Does this look right? Is this the cue that you're looking for? And they say, oh, this is so nice that you made this, Dan. And then they explain why it doesn't uh, work for them at all. So, uh, so you have to do uh, several iterations for uh, sometimes. Um, and and I think this this notion also simplifies things as a modeler uh, because when people are doing a procedure and there's a complication or or even normal function there's a lot of focus and uh and so uh, maybe this is a principle in art i know you're an artist this was probably a principle in art that the the detail needs to be in a very small area and everything around it can be kind of fuzzy and so um, so as I've built surgical models, I've realized that in virtually all open surgery, the opening is really physically pretty small. It's a few inches. And so the model you have to build is only, you know, a few inches in diameter at the most. And because they're looking at a surface, um, it doesn't need to be very thick. <laughs> And, and so most of the models we build now are just little pieces of the, uh, you know, the organ or the part of the body that we're trying to get them to respond to. And that makes the modeling so much more simple. So the first time I did a neurosurgical model, I thought I had to build a whole brain. And so I used a whole lot of supplies and spent hours and built a whole brain. And then when I started watching neurosurgery, I realized that all the surgery is through a tiny little hole in the skull. And you don't see the whole brain. You just see a tiny little piece of it. And so the second version of that model turned out to be just a little chunk of brain, uh, about two inches in diameter. And, And that was important. The stuff around it, I think if you pay some attention to the, to the dressing of things, it also makes the modeling a whole lot easier. And so uh, the neurosurgical model, for example, the, the, way, uh, the way it's draped turned out to be really important. In neurosurgery, there are these little clips that they put around the, the, the drapes that hold it close to the skull. 
And we just got a bunch of those little clips and just that little decoration triggered the surgeons immediately. They knew exactly where they were, where they were operating. And even though my brain models are, you know, a far cry from real human brain, the decoration around them, the fact that it's in a small hole and the fact that it functioned in the way that they expected um, uh, engaged our attending neurosurgeons quite um, easily and, and quite completely. They all said so. So I think that's a, a, another couple of things that modelers need to keep in mind. Just model the important part. You can keep it small, decorate it appropriately so that when people encounter it, it looks like the place where the procedure is occurring. It reminds me a lot of photography, and there's a technique called bokeh where you um, focus in on one area and kind of blur out the rest. Uh huh. And um, and that may I think that makes real a lot of sense just in education in general that you focus in on the objectives and you have to do the same in your simulation whether it's the technology the uh, the progression of the case, the actors that you have involved, it should all be around the objective because I think what typically happens is people get really excited. Oh, the mannequin seizes and the mannequin can die and do all sorts of things. And they go all, you know, you can act for me. And they it just goes way out of what the original intent was of that simulation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we end this, Dan, I know you've done research on this, and um, I think it'd be great for our listeners to, to if we discuss it a little bit, because we talked about the five senses, and I, out of my senses, smell is huge for me. Like, I walk into a place, and if I smell GI bleed, I know it's a GI bleed, and I think about all my experiences around GI bleeds, and... Some centers are, are, you know, using the powder form, using spray, using things that do exist out there. Uh, some don't and just probably have not considered it or, you know, don't make it part of their daily simulations. I want to see your take on that. Oh, you're forcing me to talk about my very disappointing <laughs> smell study. Yeah, uh, but I want I more importantly, I want to hear what well, go ahead. So so I have the same sense that, you know, that smell is a very basic primitive in our evolutionary development, a very primitive sense. Uh, and that if something, you smell something, you know, we've all had this experience, you smell something and it brings you back to a moment in your life. Uh, you remember what summer vacation was like, or you remember what, uh, you know, the, the, you know, your interaction with a person because you pick up a smell. So I just thought, you know, smell is really important. We should be using smell in simulation. So we conducted this study, and the study was uh, the smell of burning flesh in the operating room. 
If you've ever been in an operating room, you know they use a lot of electrosurgery, and electrosurgery causes the flesh to burn, and invariably it has a very, very characteristic smell. And you can walk into any operating room in any place in the world, and that is a very identifiable and characteristic smell. And so we thought, um, uh, let's uh, bring that out. And so we'll uh, do our regular courses. And in half those courses, we would have the smell. And in the other half of the courses, we would not have the smell. So we had two electrosurgery machines, one that produced energy and one that sounded like it did, but it didn't produce any energy. We had a surgical model, and in the center of the surgical model, we put a small piece of meat. We had an actor operate on it, and they would do exactly the same operation. In one case, it would produce, um, you know, you know, substantial amounts of smoke uh, and smell. And uh, and uh, when I walked into that operating room uh, on a day when we had the intervention group, that is the smell group, I just lit up. I thought, boy, this sure smells like an operating room. And so we um, uh, brought our participants into these cases, half of which smelled, half of which didn't. And at the end, we gave them a very extensive survey about realism and things that they perceived that made it real for them or not. And unfortunately, uh, when we analyzed the results, there was no difference in the smell group and the non-smell group. So one of the limitations of the study was that everyone rated the realism very high, and so there may have been a ceiling effect that the addition of the smell didn't contribute very much to the overall sense that it was realistic. But I have to say it was quite disappointing to me because I <laughs> thought we were really on to something. I want to redo that study. Well, maybe uh, you know <laughs> we or other people should redo that study and... Uh, um, and, you know, maybe in a different context, a uh, different situation. I know whenever we add smell to simulations, um, it's very likely that someone's going to comment on it later. Um, and so, you know, my, my sense is that our study didn't actually measure the truth, and the truth is that smell does make some difference. And so mm -hmm. I like to use it. But I have to convince all my colleagues who, um, who, who needle me about going against my own, uh, uh, my own research uh, to, to, to use it. There's a lot to research in this. I hope someone takes it and runs with it, and especially smells, because that's important to me. I know that that triggers a lot for me. Can, can I just add one last thing, Janice? Um, so. One thing about the modeling that I find that I found to be surprising is that it's not very hard. It doesn't take a lot of uh, educational background. It doesn't take a lot of experience. I often say that you know it's about fourth grade art class level of modeling. And so, you know, just making a little clay model of something and then uh, buying a silicone rubber kit and pouring the silicone into the, into the mold that you've made out of the clay is really quite easy. 
and mm-hmm. and any anybody in simulation can do it. I think there's a little bit of an intimidation barrier, and so I would urge people to just jump right over that barrier and dig in and start playing. The materials are inexpensive, takes a little bit of time, but it's really fun, and you'll come up with something that uh, will be quite functional. And some of the models that I have seen on my site visits, um, the impressive ones, is uh, they would collaborate with their bioengineering program in their university, and that would be their project, which has been pretty fun. So, I mean, recruiting students to do this as well is, I think, a great resource. Yeah, and, and guiding them not to overdo it, I think, is the thing that, you know, the tendency when you give this problem to people who are supposed to be experts is to kind of overdo the realism and 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 uh, spend way too much time on things that are less important, like the physical fidelity. Mm-hmm. And so, so your role maybe is to guide them to make it functionally accurate, but not spend a lot of time uh, making it perfect. And make sure that they write a recipe sheet because that's yes. that's pretty big of recreating absolutely all right well thanks dan okay well that was fun all right have a good day see you bye dj simulationistas sup is brought to you by the center for medical simulation find out more about cms and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.